0: Living the Dream acknowledges the traditional owners of the land it is recorded on, especially the Jagera and Turrbal peoples, elders past, present and future, and their continuing struggles for justice and self-determination. Living the Dream is an irregularly published anti-capitalist podcast from Brisbane. Hi everybody, you are listening to Living the Dream, and John's not here tonight because he's uh, doing parental roles looking after sick kids, but you're joined with me, Dave, and I'm at With Sober Senses on Twitter, and I'm very excited tonight because we've got a special guest, Vanna Marley, how are you?
1: I'm good, Dave, how are you? I'm
0: good, thank you. And Vanna you're on Twitter, aren't you?
1: I'm on Twitter, so I'm at vchristabel, so that's C-H-R-I-S-T-A-B-E-L.
0: Brilliant. And one of the reasons I, well, the main reason I really wanted to get you on the show is that you've written a number of pieces about the NDIS, so that's the National Disability Insurance Scheme, and you've also written, linked to that as well, the deficiency of healthcare provision in rural Australia too. Um, And and that's, I really wanted to dig into those things because I think they're things that kind of um, sink below the surface in many ways that aren't part of the conversation, even particularly um, amongst radicals either. Have have you experienced it, you know, as being, you know, like a young anti-capitalist that you find that there's much kind of analysis in the left about the NDIS or about health provision in rural Australia?
1: Yeah, for sure. So I would say that there's like next to nothing. So my background, obviously, I come from Wollomba in far north New South Wales. So it's like quite working class in the northern rivers um, and very like fragmented at the moment. We've just been hit by floods last year, which like decimated the town um, and just like a lack of infrastructure, especially regarding healthcare. Um, So I moved to university in 2016, um, kind of started to get involved in radical politics and started to kind of know the Sydney left a bit more um, and was like really keen to like talk about regional healthcare and like all my experiences um, and people just like didn't understand anything like the experiences that I had had um, I just didn't realise was so different to the type of like healthcare that was being provided um, in Sydney for example and I remember at the start of of my first year of university, that was when the These Cuts Are Killing Us kind of movement was starting. So when um, the pathology cuts were on the table and, you know, it was going to affect in particular people in regional areas. Um, And I spoke at this rally in Canberra and everyone was like, wow, that's great, but I just didn't understand or know, like, how hard it was. And I was like, fuck, like, why don't people know about this? Um,
0: As, As an urban person, can you give us some kind of picture about, like, what is the difference between urban and regional health
1: care provision. Yep. So I guess, like, the difference is, like, in my small town of Wawa, you've probably got two or three practicing kind of, like, GP clinics, um, and, like, I would say at least half the people you know um, would go to the same doctor as you. Like, my doctor, up until I moved to university, and my parents' family doctor was the same doctor who delivered me in the hospital. So, like... That is mind-blowing. Yeah. yeah. So, like, um, there are people who stay in these regions for, like, pretty much their entire careers. Um, And for like the regional centres, you've got around one hospital and that kind of has to cater for all these like outlying villages that you have. So for instance, um, although I lived in Mawulumbah for some time and went to school in Mawulumbah, I lived in outlying villages like Yukai and Talgum. And so that adds, you know, maybe an extra 25 Ks um, onto how far away you are from these regional centres. And I guess uh, what's increasingly happening is that these kind of regional hospitals are losing all their resources and people are being pushed further and further out. So um, in northern New South Wales in particular, people are having to cross the border into Queensland and access the Queensland health system all the time.
0: Is that to access the Gold Coast University Hospital?
1: Yeah, so to access Rubina Hospital, to access Gold Coast University Hospital, just because, like, Moor Hospital um, is so under-resourced. Like, you can't really get surgery there. Um, it's the same at Tweed Hospital, which is supposed to kind of be the regional hub of, you know, the far north New South Wales coast. Um, and it is just an exploding point. And it's been used as, like, a political football for, like, years and years and years and years. So I wrote in one of the pieces that you mentioned before about – my experience was when I was oh, around nine years old. Um, we were in a motor vehicle accident. Um, it was a fatal motor vehicle accident. So it was like very serious. And we were transported to Tweed Hospital um, and I spent, a good five hours as like a little child who'd just been in like a fatal car accident sleeping on the floor because there were no beds. And, you know, I had like pieces of glass in my ears and like, there just was not enough capacity. And that was in 2007. Um, so it's like 10 years on, there's still been known upgrades and yeah, it's like at exploding point.
0: That's mind blowing. And just because we do have some kind of international listeners, how far does it take you to get from, um, The to the if you so it's Mwilambar that, yeah, how long does it take you to get from Mwilambar to the Gold Coast?
1: uh to the Gold Coast, probably around 40 minutes or so. Minutes, yeah. um, and I guess, like, one of the kind of issues that doesn't get talked about as well, um, and kind of tying it back to this motor vehicle accident, is that, like, a lot of the roads to the Gold Coast are, like, you know, really poorly resourced, they're mm. terrible, there are so many accidents that happen on the Pacific Highway in particular, um, that, like, if you are in an emergency and you're in a rush... Like, it's very likely that you're going to get yourself into more danger just yeah. because you are having to rush to hospital.
0: Yeah, let alone those kind of back roads in that area as well, which yeah. are like, like, I don't even like being on them during the day.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not like nice
0: at all. Okay, so that, that's a pretty terrible, like, how does that get played out in the local area? So the are people talking about kind of healthcare provision and what's happening at the hospital regularly?
1: Yeah. So I think people are talking about it really, really regularly. And I think people are angry about it a lot of the time as well. Um, But it happens in this like really slow kind of unwitting way. So um, it was in my final year of of high school, sorry, when they tried to close the Moorlumbar Hospital maternity ward. um, And a lot of the midwives and like women in the community in particular were just like absolutely gobsmacked that this was happening. And so they actually launched a campaign and they managed to reopen the maternity ward, I think around three months later. But all the services had kind of been rolled back so it wasn't at the capacity it was before and so it's just this kind of like process where things get cut people get angry and then things are reinstated but not in the form that they were before and so it's this kind of cycle where things are rolled back um, and where you just kind of become accustomed to having to go to the Gold Coast or to John Flint Hospital or to you know all these hospitals that are 100 k's away to actually Mm. get the treatment that you need and it's just you know accepted as normality
0: yeah i look i i know that i have um friends who live in the coughs region who regularly for their kids health have to be helicoptered to sydney yeah you know because for anything beyond kind of like take your temperature and patch them up kind of treatment it's not provided outside of the sydney hospitals
1: Yeah, exactly. Like, there's no room for specialised care. Um, Allied healthcare in particular is really, really hard to come across. Um, For example, in Moolanba Hospital, for example, they have, like, one occupational therapist they have one social worker and this is supposed That's to serve a hospital that is at like you know breaking point uh, and it's the same for tweed hospital it's the same for like all these other hospitals around the region mm-hmm. where people are waiting in emergency they're having to sleep on floors because there aren't enough beds um and you see the outcome of this being people not getting the surgeries that they need. I think I read a statistic about Tweed Hospital where it's like, um, instead of the state benchmark of 25% of surgeries being emergency level, 50% are because people are waiting so long that like, you know, things get infected or things Uh. become so drastic that like it, yeah, it's an emergency then. Um, and the waiting lists are like absolutely insane. Like I've heard of people, being put on waiting lists to then be put onto the waiting list because the surgeons just, like, can't promise that they will be able to, you know, perform surgery on you. Yeah,
0: that's amazing. And, again, for international listeners, like, the distance between Tweed to Sydney is considerable.
1: Oh, yeah. It, it's, like, um, a one-hour, 20-minute flight. So yeah. that breaks down to, like, I don't know, 800 kilometres or so. Yeah, so so, yeah. so
0: it's like if you have to go from, like, I guess, London to Berlin. Yeah. No, it, so that, that means a lot if you're going to be in hospital for a considerable period of time and you've got family and your support network in the Tweed and you have to go to Sydney yep, for sure, a massive disru- disruption in people's lives.
1: And, like, it's not even the disruption too. like, keeping in mind that, like, this is predominantly, like, working class area, like, if you have to then fork out the costs for flights, if you have to fork out all of this money just to be able to get healthcare, it it doesn't become sustainable for people. Um, And it's the same with disability care, like, I'm sure we'll talk about throughout the podcast, Mm -hmm. but people just... If you have a serious health issue that is ongoing and chronic, you kind of have to weigh up whether you're going to stay in the region um, and you have the resources to do that or whether you have to locate and just be closer to a central hospital where you can actually get the healthcare that you need.
0: Which is also really impractical for a lot of people, right? Like because you Yeah, know, of it, course. Like the, the cost of shifting to a major city compared to, say, the cost of what I assume is like renting or purchasing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is, is massively different. So you've got less assets going into it. Yeah, for sure. You know, let alone then having to find work and the rest.
1: Yeah, Yeah, it's a massive disruption to people's lives and, like, it should not be this way where you have to weigh up, like, surviving and actually, like, maintaining your health mm. um, or, like, maintaining your livelihood and, like, the kind of family and community that you've set up in the region.
0: Okay. And I've got to say as well, like, I don't know if this is a particular kind of bugbear of mine at the moment, but there's just a, like, well, on the the large chunks of what we might call both the right and the left, how you want to define those, are quite happy just to kind of, like, consign what's considered rural Australia to, like, no, who gives a shit kind of status. Like, yeah, for where, sure. Where it's yep. either, like, oh, it's, just, it's either rednecks or hippies, so who cares?
1: that's like totally the case, like the Northern rivers, which is where Mawaraba is, is kind of, you know, hippie region. Um, so people just don't really give a shit. Um, they don't really want to engage like, you know, Nimbin is the laughing stock of the Northern rivers. And when people talk about the Northern rivers, you think of Nimbin, mm. um, But you don't think of, like, these other communities as well. And they're, like, really seriously starting to fragment. Like, a lot of essential services are going out the door. So um, in Mwollongba, for example, we recently lost our, like, women's service and domestic violence shelter. So now you have to somehow travel 300 kilometres down the road to get Accommodation when you're seeking, you know, safety from domestic violence, and like, how the hell is a woman with kids, for example, going to be able to travel 300 kilometers when she's, you know, trying to search for safety? That's like, it's ch- absolutely
0: ridiculous. That's
1: chilling. Yep. And uh, also, I, I think, sorry, just a
0: really no, important keep point too
1: is the fact that, like, uh, it's not like people are just letting this happen. Like, there was a really big mobilisation around it. Um, there's been big mobilisations around the lack of affordable housing in Moorumbah, especially after the floods. Um, And there's this really beautiful initiative that has come about called It Takes a Town um, which I think is like very kind of socialist in its way of thinking so they've kind of just been like, "All right, the state government and the federal government have left us for shit. They haven't intervened after the floods. There are families and families and families who are homeless. We're going to start actually intervening and they've organised I think some free healthcare clinic days Um, they've painted like a, a little kind of stair corner in the main town where they've uh, a food pantry and some like um clothes racks where people can you know donate clothes and people can take what they need um and they are starting to try and grow like a a public fruit tree kind of orchid around um so it's not like the community is not trying to organize around this or that there's like absolutely no resistance at all or people are just letting it happen i think people are being like really smart in the ways that they're trying to intervene
0: in this that's really amazing that's fantastic could you give us a you know, I do want to get onto the NDIS, but can you give us a kind of insight? Because that's you've mentioned two kind of like you know the um, we if you, you talked before about the, the cuts to the maternity ward, and you said yep. there was a struggle around it. Now yep. you talk about housing, you talk about a struggle around it. Is there a particular yep. kind of local political or cultural tradition that this is building out of?
1: Um, So I would say probably the environmental tradition. So we're quite close um, to Lismore where you've seen the Bentley blockade and I think around 2014. Um, So like people do know how to collectivise and people do know um, that like, you know, mass people power can get things for them. Um, but I think in particular in communities like more who like are a little bit more inland, um, there isn't this huge tradition. And I think people are just kind of stumbling around and finding it for themselves. Um, but the way that they're finding it for themselves is working. Um, and yeah, it is really, really great to watch. And it makes me really sad that I'm not there at the moment Mm. when these like really amazing things are starting to happen.
0: Yeah, that's kind of, and, and th- those experiences don't circulate, right?
1: Yeah, I, like no one would talk about this ever. <laughs> yeah. um, and I get really mad at my friends too where I'm just like, you know, you guys live in Sydney, you guys should like do a road trip out to these rural communities and you should come see what's happening and the way people are organising because totally. it's completely different to the way that we would organise in like urban centres. Um, but it, it's working for people.
0: Do you, do you find even like the Bentley blockade is talked about?
1: yeah for sure for sure so like for instance my vice principal at high school was like one of the main organizers so it's like I think in particular because you have these really really strong community links because um not only have you got people who've had really long kind of historical links to the region but you're also like quite geographically isolated so you have to rely upon each other and so people talk about these issues all the time and it creates a really strong community and and Organisations like Lock the Gate in particular, like if you drive down the road in any one of these rural villages, um, you will see a Lock the Gate sign. And in you know, the actual kind of signs to the entrances of some of these places, they all say that they're proudly CSG free. Mm. Um, so people have like a, a real sense of community and pride um, about this kind of narrative of being a collective community, I think.
0: The other thing I wanted to kind of like, maybe you could confirm this for me as well when we we're talking about social services and healthcare services – I yep. thought like every time I spend time in that part of the world, it always seems there's a whole bunch of kind of young people which life is being kind of challenging or difficult to that have come up from the south to kind of just hang out in that part of the world. So like that would you know, and because it's warmer and there's some kind of counterculture and Sydney's a tough place to live, that would obviously put extra pressure on these kind of services and what's going on in the town too, right?
1: Yeah, for sure. So, like, you've got this kind of um, younger population who's coming up. And also because, um, I guess, until we saw the floods and, like, the really drastic lack of housing, housing was cheaper than it would have been in Sydney. So, like, if you're a young family, um, working class, like, you, you might be able to buy a house in the region mm. Um Whereas, like, in Sydney, like, lost cause. Mm -hmm. Um, But we also have, like, a really big aging population as well. So, like, the kind of coastal areas like Kingscliff, Tweed Heads, lots of people move to retirement. There's kind of an expanding aged care kind of infrastructure that's being expanded upon. Um, And it means that we have, like, a a really rapidly growing population. Like, I think um, some of the population – kind of calculations were saying, you know, it's going to grow by like 140,000 people in the next couple of years or so. Um, So people are definitely moving up to this area, but the infrastructure is A, not being talked about or invested in by state governments or federal governments. um, And B, it's like at bursting and it has been for like 10 or 20 years. Mm. So you've got this really, really big lag where like the population is increasing and like the services are not only catching up they're decreasing and they're either being shut or they're being privatized
0: wow that's so intense Let, let's jump on to the question of the ndis so yep. what is the ndis what is
1: the ndis so i think i should I guess, start off by saying I am not an expert. The only reason that I even know what the NDIS is, is because my mum acquired a disability in uh, towards the end of 2016, and I was just kind of thrown into the bureaucracy of it all as her kind of main guardian. Um, so the NDIS is the National Disability Insurance Scheme, so it's kind of like a social assistance approach to providing disability support. Um, it was introduced by, I think, Julia Gillard in 2013 under federal legislation. And the whole point of this scheme is um, kind of to individualize it. So instead of people having um, access to government services that were like bulkly funded, people are now individual clients of the scheme. Um, and you. it's kind of like a voucher system where you then get to purchase from different disability providers. Um, so you get The opportunity to either self manage your funding package or you get a support coordinator and then you kind of go about choosing your service providers. Um, And so the old model, in contrast, was pretty much just kind of centralized, where like state governments and federal governments funded disability services and there wasn't this kind of choosing. So I think a lot of the rhetoric around the NDIS is about empowering people with disabilities and that, like, being able to choose your services now is this, like, great exercise in autonomy and freedom for people, Um, and I'm not so sure that that has translated at all.
0: Mm. Okay, so what does it look like in practice?
1: So, in practice, you apply for the NDIS, and it's a hugely bureaucratic process to apply for it, Um, and I know there are heaps of concerns that people have written about. For example, if you are a newly settled migrant, um, if you have English as a second language and you have language barriers, if you have an intellectual disability, which just seems the most fundamental flaw in the program, that, like, people with disabilities not being able to actually apply and access the scheme, or... If you are in a, like, kind of Aboriginal community in more remote places of Australia, it's really, really hard to apply. So it's essentially a really bureaucratic process where you... Submit heaps and heaps and heaps of paperwork and then you wait for however long it takes and usually it takes around, I know, for hours, it took around six months or so, Um, and then you start a planning meeting. So this planning meeting can happen either face-to-face or via phone. Um, They're trying, I think, to move it now just to -to face-to-face and there's been lots of complaints about these planning meetings happening over the phone just because they...
0: Who's the planning meeting with?
1: So the planning meeting is with people from the NDIS. So these are like your, your NDIS planners or your caseworkers, um, And a lot of these workers, which I would love to talk about as well, have like really shit conditions. A lot of these people are on labour hire contracts. They're being paid less than public servants who are doing the exact same roles as them. Um, and they have next to no training and disability, which isn't, you know, kind of only unfair on the people who are trying to get support because it kind of rorts them from getting any kind of, you know, proper understanding of the complexities of their disabilities, Mm. but it's also really unfair for these workers who I'm sure it's quite traumatic because, you know, they're being faced with these really complex situations that they can't fully comprehend and they're faced with the anger of participants and they just break down in tears because, like, what can they do, you know what I mean?
0: Sounds like Centrelink, but worse.
1: Yeah, it's like Centrelink, but worse, essentially. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, the, the whole kind of system... I think, is privatisation by stealth. So it's, you know, very much a kind of neoliberal scheme where you're kind of fetishizing, you know, people's individuality and their control and their choice and, like, it's the ability to consume that's seen as empowering for people. Um, so you've got kind of this new market of private disability supporters who are starting to kind of expand and compete with public providers of mm. disability support. Um, and it's kind of... Known by a lot of disability activists that, like, as this expands, public providers are slowly phased out, um, and it leads to inexperienced providers who are in the, um, the private sector, sorry, just kind of making the switch to disability because they know that they can make money from it.
0: So, so, like, I want to get to, to that point, but just to, to pull back so, when you go when you have this planning meeting, does that determine like the, the size or the amount of vouchers you get?
1: Yep. So the idea of the planning meeting is for the NDIS to kind of understand the totality of your disability and understand the totality of your life. So they ask you everything from like, you know, what are the things that you enjoy? What are your goals in creating an NDIS plan? Like, what are the ultimate things that you want to get out of this scheme? To things like, you know, what are these little things that you do in your everyday life? Who are the people who are involved in your care and that sort of thing? And then they take that, they aggregate it, however they do it. I'm not quite sure. It's quite bureaucratic and unknown. And then they come back to you maybe a month or two later saying, this is your plan. This is how much we funded you in these different kind of sections. Like for instance, there's supported independent living, which would be for people who um, need money for kind of day-to-day living and there's transport costs and all these different kind of sections. And I guess a lot of them kind of meld into each other as well. So Yeah, you you kind of are at the whim of your planner and how much money the planner thinks you need and how the planner has understood your disability.
0: At that point, is there a capacity to contest it?
1: Yeah, so there is a capacity to contest it. So it's um, basically just called going to review. So you can review your NDIS plan, and I think what's supposed to happen is your plans are supposed to be reviewed yearly as well. Um, But it's also like a really hard... Uh, task to try and get a review because it takes so, so long. Um, and a lot of the time you might go to review and you might come back with a plan that is worse off than before.
0: That's so terrifying.
1: Yeah, it's it's really, really terrifying. Um, and yeah, I know people who have literally had to quit their jobs and now kind of a, a working, you'd call it, um, full-time just to try and understand the complexities of the planning process so they can actually try and get the best plan for you know their children or the people that they're caring for because it is so, so hard to get your plan right um, and it is so, so hard for people to get the services that they need. I was reading the other day about patients with motor neuron disease um, and in regards to their plans, people's life expectancies are taken into account. So it means they can, you know, put it into a little calculator and go, well, we think you're only going to live for another six months, therefore we're not going to fund you anything because it would be, you know, a wasted investment essentially. Um, essentially. It's, oh horrifying. <laughs> it's horrifying, like it's literally the commodification of people with disabilities. It's really, really horrifying and, you know, it's hard to talk about without getting, like, really emotional and upset about it, especially when you watch this happen to the people that you love and, it, you know, it's this really kind of – Um, rationalization where people become numbers and people become just another applicant or another client. Like even the way that they talk to you, it's intensely alienating. Like I get emails sometimes from the NDIS um, which come up, you know, in the subject line in big letters classified and all this kind of bureaucracy. And I'm just like, I'm, trying to talk about how best to support someone. I, I don't want all of this kind of I guess sensationalization around it and all this secrecy and all this bureaucracy around it that makes it really, really intimidating and really really scary.
0: Yeah, it sounds terrifying. But once so once you get this assessment, so you yeah. can either like manage it yourself. for people that have intellectual disabilities, who manages their package?
1: Uh, So, usually you'd have a carer, so a family member, for instance, who's involved and gets authorization from the NDIS to act on your behalf, Mm. Um, and then it is up to that carer or that nominee to decide if they want to self-manage or if they want to go with a support coordinator. and I guess one of the problems is a lot of people don't have time or the understanding to self-manage. So I yeah. – um, my mum's kind of only primary support. I also have been working part-time to support myself. I'm a university student and I have such little understanding of the NDIS because there are so little resources out there that are actually in plain English that you can understand yeah. that I – have to opt for a support coordinator and a lot of the time people don't want to opt for a support coordinator because it means that this person is acting on your behalf and they might not understand the situation as well as the carer so then it adds this other layer of kind of complexity to it
0: so this these support coordinators are they employed by the government or are they part of ngos are they just could i I just (laughs) set myself up as a support coordinator tomorrow and run Dave's support coordinator business
1: Look, I don't think you could do it that easily, but it is kind of heading towards that direction. So it's the same kind of voucher system with all the other providers. So your support coordinator is one of those providers. So you have to initially kind of shop around for a support coordinator. And our current support coordinator is under our regional Shire Council, but a lot of them do come from NGOs. A lot of them do come from the private sector. Um, And a lot of the time, too, I know uh, disability advocates who are – um, so valuable, will say, don't go with a support coordinator who may also be attached to an agency who provides other services as well, because it's very likely that there'll be a conflict of interest. Mm. Will the, you know, they'll kind of recommend going towards this service.
0: This is such a... I would, I would have been, I don't know how long ago, within a decade, I, I worked as a carer for people with intellectual disabilities. And just to, the way that the funding model worked then, it was state-based funding that came from the Department of Community Services. It would go to, like, the block funding would go to an NGO and then we would provide the totality of services um, for, for... Even then, it was people referred to as clients. The yep. idea of, like, turning those case managers into kind of, like, service providers who've then got to broker the package seems like a massive fucking waste of their time.
1: Yeah, it's such a waste of time, too. And I just, I hate the whole kind of ideology around it, that I'm supposed to be shopping around for disability How do you know?
0: Like, how, like if, if I got sorry, don't I mean to be flippant, but say I've got, a, no, I've got my yeah. funding and, yep. I, and I need, um, you know, people to give me support at home in the morning and afternoon to, like, make my dinner and make my breakfast. Yeah. How do I go out into this market and work out? And it's like, do they, do they charge different prices? Like, how do I work this yeah. out? Yeah.
1: yeah, people charge different prices. Like, the whole point of it is, right, that these kind of private providers can start making profit and they're actually competing against each other for people's, you know, package money. Mm. So um, it means – that these kind of public providers can't compete in the market anymore. So they're phased out. So we kind of have, you know, this array of private providers. And it's really hard to tell what they're offering, like there's a, an NDIS portal that you go through um, and you can kind of flick through um, different providers in your region based on the radius that you want. Um, and it's so hard to find out information. And it's kind of just like, well, this looks like it's the closest provider to me, so I'm going to go with it. And then if the provider doesn't work out, then you have to shop around for an ear provider. And it's essentially a waste of people's time and money as well. Like, you know, you're wasting your, your kind of vouchers or your packages on some physios or some support workers who might not be the best fit for you.
0: Do we have any idea at this point in time how the shift to this model has actually impacted people's care?
1: Yeah. So um – the way that a lot of government is reporting on it is that like it's been totally revolutionizing i think they try to say that around 80% of people have seen significant kind of increases in the level of support that they've seen but there's lots of contradictory kind of information like they did a study that came out of melbourne that said there wasn't any tangible increase in people's levels of support but there was a huge increase in the kind of administrative side that cares um, and guardians were having to do. And there's a, a huge increase in the kind of bureaucracy.
0: Isn't, um, that, isn't that amazing? Because, like, I think, you know, this is such an interesting part of all these changes, which always frame themselves as getting away from the bureaucratic state. Yeah. Always, I know. like, you know, I think Mark Fisher wrote about this at some point, always end up in us having to do lots more bureaucratic paperwork. Yeah. But yep. it being cause... more incomprehensible.
1: Yeah. Like, it's, it, I can't... Even put in words how hard it is to explain. Like, I, it's like been nearly two years, I still get emails that I just cannot decipher. Um, And a lot of the time, too, it's like your own support coordinator who doesn't understand the system. It's your own social worker who can't answer your questions because they don't understand the system. It seems to me that it is kind of just one big experiment that has been rolled out yeah. without yeah. kind of any foresight into how rapidly it would expand. So it means that they've had to bring on all these kind of labour yeah. hire contractors. Um, and it means that, it's, in particular in regional areas, a lot of kind of states are withdrawing their funding because they're like, oh, well, great, the NDIS is coming in. We can just withdraw funding or we can privatise. Um, and the NDIS doesn't catch up in time. So it means in some areas you're left without anything.
0: Okay, so this is there's two things I want to say on this one. Like one thing is you just jogged my memory because I remember a friend of mine who was working in – friend, you know, a comrade, you know, who was working in the Department of Community Services here yep. was talking about some kind of national breakdown where they couldn't establish a national level of standards for what you had to – meet to be qualified to be one of these people who could receive NDIS funding. And I think the um, what was decided was they'll just trundle along and do it anyway. So, you know, like the standards of what might be necessary in the ACT don't match WA.
1: Yeah, for so we- sure. Yeah, I can definitely imagine that happening. Like, I am in the process now of relocating my mum from Wollongba to Canberra, A, so she can be closer to me, B, because there is literally no disability Mm. accommodation for her in the region. Like, this is the only way that we can get her out of a hospital setting. Um, And we're about to kind of transition into the ACT. And theoretically, there shouldn't be any change because it is a national scheme. But of course, we know that there is going to be a change. And we're kind of bracing ourselves for it to see if it's going to be better or worse. Because... You know, there is kind of no standardised practice across the states. And I know that there's been heaps of issues with, for instance, WA wanting to kind of withdraw from the system for a bit because it didn't want to meet the quota that was agreed on um, with the Gillard government. And there's lots and lots of issues over state funding and like responsibility between the federal Commonwealth government and then the state governments.
0: So so yeah, just to get drill into this point, so state governments previously provided a whole series of disability support. Yep. And with the NDIS they're just stepping out of that space.
1: Yep. So their kind of idea is all right. Well, we, um, they came to agreements with the Gillard government that they have to provide this amount of funding to the federal government for the NDIS. So a lot of states, for instance, yeah. So a lot of states like the New South Wales government are right. Um, so, so a lot of states like the New South Wales government are like, all right, we can just direct all our funding to here and then we can just take our hands out of disability support altogether and we don't have to kind of provide anything. We're going to leave it completely to the NDIS. Well,
0: um, what and, happens to all those services and employees that it would have like decades yeah, of experience in provision yeah, what, in certain areas?
1: Yeah, what does happen? <laughs> like that is the question that no one seems to really be able to answer. Um, so I know in New South Wales, I think around... Uh, 6,000 disability workers um, moved into the kind of private and non-for-profit sector. In the ACT, I think more than 300 disability services staff either lost their kind of roles with the ACT government and took voluntary redundancy packages or moved into other areas in the ACT public government.
0: So, there, like, there's something about this that also simultaneously really devalues the work of carers, as in people who are paid disability carers. Particularly yeah, like the time that it might take to develop relationships, to reach those more kind of intangible outcomes for people, like um, you know, it's, it's like someone I know who works as a carer has, she's worked for a carer for a very long period of time. These clients, which she had these long term relationships with, and that like ha- had all these achievements, like linguistically and socially, it's just suddenly they weren't her clients anymore. Because with a shift in the funding package, there was somewhere there was another service that was cheaper.
1: Yeah, for sure. And that has happened to, like, so many different people. Um, I know lots of people kind of expected the NDIS was just kind of going to strengthen and bolster the support services that they had in place and was just going to kind of solidify, you know, the relationships that people had with their social support workers and things. Um, and they didn't realise that the NDIS actually has, like, undone a lot of this for a lot of people. So, you know, now they have to move around, um, especially for people with more complex cases, um, because they're not going to government support and they're going to private providers it means that these private providers can refuse to kind of service people they can go no your case is too complex we're not going to service you um so it means those people well what does happen to those people there was a case recently I think it was a 20 year old man who had autism and intellectual disabilities and he was held in remand in jail for I think a good 30 days or so Um, in my mum's case in particular, she's been trapped in a hospital setting for over 18 months because there's no disability accommodation and aged care refuses to place her. Do
0: you you mind talking about, because you're about the situation that your mum's in?
1: Yeah, for sure. So um, my mum has Guillain-Barre syndrome. So it's essentially like an autoimmune disease that attacks your nervous system and it can leave you quadriplegic, which has happened in her case. Um, you can regain movement, but it's obviously a really, really slow process. So there's this kind of gray area in particular that we've found with her where you're not quite sure what falls into the kind of health system and you're not quite sure what falls into the disability okay, system.
0: So can you make that distinction clear, clear for me?
1: Yep. So mum was admitted as like a critical patient with a medical condition. Um, And so she was in the ICU for a good four or five months. um, And it took a while for her to stabilize and for doctors to be like, okay, She's kind of stabilised. She's over this spout of autoimmune disease. Um, This is what has been left. This is the disability that's been left over. Um, So it's kind of like this huge grey area where you're not quite sure when she's no longer a medically acute patient and when she's just now a person with a disability. So we've had to kind of fuddle our way through that. Um, And it means that she has been in hospital for uh, since October 2016, essentially. So, she's just been shifted between Moulin Hospital, Tweed Hospital, Rabina Hospital and Gold Coast University Hospital. She's been in and out of ICUs. um, Until recently, she didn't even get to leave these hospital settings because she didn't have NDIS support workers in place because we had such trouble with her plan and we had such trouble just shopping around for people who had the kind of experience to deal with these really complex cases. Places, which is just compounded in regional areas because these services don't exist. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we've kind of been fighting a lot of bureaucracy especially regarding housing for her because she should not be in hospital. The healthcare system doesn't want her in hospital. She is taking up a really valuable bed for them because they have limited beds as there are. Mm. They have to be housing someone with a disability. But because there are no aged care facilities that will take her, because there's no disability accommodation or group homes in our region at all or that will you know, be willing to take her, it means that she is literally homeless in hospital. So she's been in hospital for... God knows how long now, Um, and we've been fighting for the NDIA, which is the National Disability Insurance Agency, so they have a lot to do with funding as well, and they're kind of like the higher-up agency and body that the NDIS comes under, to try and get her housing quotes. Uh, There was a point in the bureaucracy where I think people just hadn't thought about how the scheme would work, where you would not get funding for housing until you could show that you had secured like a place in a group home Um, and you had group homes who wouldn't (laughs) secure you a place or give you a place because you didn't have funding to show them. Um, So it's like this really evil catch 22 where people are just left waiting in hospitals going, well, what do I do now? Um,
0: What do you do now?
1: What do you do now? Well, I went to the Australian. That's what I did. Um, And I tried to embarrass the NDIS and the NDIA into giving me a funding quote and giving me a review. Um, And they gave me some very angry calls and they were obviously um, very confronted and embarrassed, but nothing really came of it. And it's just come out of myself and our support coordinator trying to find her accommodation in Canberra, which we have luckily found. um, And we're in the process of now transitioning her down here. But yeah, it's, it has been hell. It has literally Mm -hmm. been hell. And I think it has been, Um, re-traumatizing for her and re-traumatizing for myself as well, like just to see how how terrible it is and how she's treated. And I think one of the main issues too is she is living in a regional hospital. She requires 24-7 care. She has a nurse who can come in and see her maybe once every three hours. So that means she is helpless. She can't do anything. Um, So if she wants to ring me on the phone, she has to get a nurse to come into the room, dial the phone, put it to her ear, hold it to her ear while we have a conversation and then hang up. So she's completely reliant on people for everything and she just doesn't get the care that she needs because there isn't the care at Moorland Bar Hospital to cater for her. And it makes me really angry because I get, you know, so mad at this situation and I feel so helpless that I can't do anything to change it. And I get really angry at the staff too because I'm like, you know... Why aren't you doing more for her? But at the same time, I have to always have this internal monologue and realize that, like, the staff are suffering – major burnout because they don't have disability care, they're they're trained nurses they're not trained in disability care they're not trained to deal with all the kind of psychological trauma that she's gone through throughout the entire kind of ordeal that she's been through Um, and they're not trained to deal with all the behavioral things, they're not trained to deal with any of the hoisting or anything that they need to do for her Um, and so you know they get mad and they lash out at her and she lashes out at them and it's just a really terrible situation for everyone involved and I get emails all the time from support workers who are just like, "We had a really bad day. We're really frustrated." And what am I supposed to, you know, say to that? Like, I acknowledge that they're frustrated, but I can't do anything about it except fight not only against the level of care that she's getting, but fight with them and against mm. the kind of conditions that they're being put through as well.
0: Sounds like a really, really horrific situation.
1: Yeah, it, it's totally horrific, and I have had my eyes opened to just how archaic a lot of the practices are. Like recently um, someone floated the idea that they were going to – attached doors to mum's hospital room so she doesn't have doors and she doesn't like doors because when doors are closed on her she feels really helpless like she can't call cool out for help um and they wanted to essentially put doors on her room place a baby monitor next to her
0: um, oh
1: my gosh i just use that to you know kind of tell when they needed to go in and see her um not like i couldn't <laughs> do that with like a four-year-old let alone a grown woman you know it, it's astounding
0: sounds humiliating
1: yeah, it's totally humiliating. Like She's in tears nearly every day. Um, a lot of the time, she'll be moved into a wheelchair and she'll be left sitting in a wheelchair for five or six hours that, A, isn't comfortable or appropriate for her because her NDIS-funded wheelchair has yet to come after five or six months um, or She recently, like this is really getting into the kind of graphic depiction, so TMI, but she has recently been able to kind of um, swallow properly for the first time. So until recently, she had a peg feed where Mm. like the nutrients kind of come in into your stomach directly in a like liquidated form. Yeah. She's been able to kind of eat custards and yogurts, and it means her bowels and her kind of digestive system is working for the first time. Mm. So it means, you know, you're filling up yep. napkins, for example, and she's left sitting there for five hours. Yeah, it's completely humiliating. And this is the same kind of care that people are getting in aged care homes. You know, this is the same kind of care that people are getting in some group homes as well because it's just so understaffed that they don't have the time to be able to get to everyone.
0: How do we understand why this situation is happening? Like, you know, I don't want to force an analysis here, but how does this fit into where capitalism's at at the moment with we have this terrible breakdown in care provision right across the board? Yep. So this is something that
1: I'm still trying to work out myself and I'm always constantly trying to reorientate my own experiences dealing with our case with the NDIS and our case with the health sector and the disability sector and where we're at with capitalism Um, and, I guess, just the state of the Australian government at the moment. And I think it is because we have, like, a really rapid devaluation in care work like um you know it was only like this week when we had the the big steps walk off where all these kind of early childhood educators walked off because no one wants to acknowledge that care work is actually essential to social reproduction Mm -hmm. um and it's kind of intangent too with like cuts to carers pensions like i am not eligible for any government support why not regarding care work, because I don't live with her, even though I do, you know, upwards of two to three hours each day of administration and casework, and also psychological support. I am her (laughs) counsellor, essentially, because she doesn't get that in the hospital. Um, And, yeah, I think it's just because we're moving really rapidly towards this model where the government kind of underfunds public services and, and leaves them pretty much on death row until they go, oh well the only option now is to turn to the private sector you know, we have to turn to privatisation because this has failed so badly, when in reality the only reason it has failed so badly is because they have made it that way and they haven't funded it Um, so it's, I see the NDIS as this kind of project of privatisation along with this devaluing of care work and also along with welfare cuts as well so There's been a lot of kind of pitting the NDIS against welfare. So um, I think there was controversy like maybe last year where Turnbull kind of insinuated that in order to fund the National Disability Insurance Scheme, we're going to have to tighten the requirements of the disability support pension and these things. And it's just like that's not how it should work. Like you're still hurting people with disabilities if you're tightening the requirements for the DSP or... I've seen people train it against the refugee issue, for example, yeah. and say, well, we can't settle refugees because we don't have enough money for the NDIS. And you see, you know, these kind of Patriot pages posting, you know, really sad stories. And they are really sad stories of people going through absolute hell with the NDIS. And, you know, they write the little racist comments about, oh, you know, why do refugees get all the money and why do these Aussie battlers yeah. not get anything? And it's like, people don't seem to see how interconnected it is. Like, I would most willingly bet that like two or three people involved in nearly every disabled person's care comes from a refugee background or from a migrant background because these people tend to get work in aged care and disability care because it's, you know, quite easy to get into and it's so undervalued.
0: Yeah. I I often want, it's really interesting, the model of the NDIS as well. Like um, I often wonder if there's this kind of problem for capital that since care work is not often in all fields, easy to commodify and since you know it's yep. through the operation of the commodity that we know the value of something in capital there's this like insane desire to develop these ersatz markets but they're never ever like kind of really proper markets anyway they're just these kind of weird simulations of them um that like seem to not achieve any of these markets are meant to achieve but don't you know like they're just it's like you can see it right across you know it's the same with um, that need to have standardized testing in schools so we can have a number that we can peg against students so eventually we can have our teachers pay be be located to those or that research outputs from universities have to have a grade. You know, all these kind of fake markets that need to be built built too. Uh, like, and I think it in some ways speaks to, like, you know, people use this term the crisis of social reproduction. That it does the state doesn't seem able to provide the level of funding within the context of capital accumulation, so it's just breaking down across the board.
1: Yep, for sure, I completely agree with that analysis. Like it is breaking down across the board, and people just don't know what to do. And I think a lot of care workers too, who are you know either being moved to the private sector um, or who are completely losing their jobs altogether, you know, they're they're fighting against it, and they really do realise like that these markets are being set up but that they don't neatly fit into these markets and that it's really, really hard to fit people into these markets. And uh, like, I think it's really good to clarify too, that I have dealt with some really brilliant people who have not followed the rules of the NDIS, for example, or who have not followed the rules because it just, it, doesn't work like it, it literally doesn't work and people get really frustrated that they can't fit people into these and so you know they will do you favors because what else are they supposed to do yeah
0: let's let's move to that question of resistance then because you know i in my head like the ndis went from around about 2013 this thing is coming it's going to have more money everything's great to suddenly yep. about i i guess maybe when um Friends who worked in the public sector started going, you've got to see this shit that's coming. And then when I read your articles, this nightmare, what is the, like, is there struggle, politics, levels of resistance against this? What does it look like? What is its possibilities? What would you think is necessary?
1: Yeah. You know, just small questions. Yeah, you know, just small questions. Um, I am constantly asking myself this all the time because I have found the process to be, you know, not only humiliating and demoralizing but to be really atomizing where I have no contact with other people with disabilities at all or I have no contact with carers at all because, you know, we're getting our individual packages, you know, we're we're not really having any contact with other people. Um, So there's very little community, and I've found disability communities that do exist have strong links because they've been established prior to the introduction of the NDIS. Um, And I've found, in particular, a lot of resistance is happening by people setting up Facebook pages, for example, and um, calling it, you know, my NDIS journey. Like, there's one called Lachlan Miles NDIS journey, Um, and it's essentially just carers or people who are looking at individual cases that are really, really bad, and they go, what the fuck do we do next? And Mm. a lot of the time, the what the fuck do we do next measure is to go to the media or to go to a local MP um, and to actually just get your story out there and to hope that the NDIS or the NDIA or whoever will just be so embarrassed that it will prioritise your case. So it's pretty much just a really desperate measure that people use to try... (laughs) Totally understandable,
0: right?
1: Yeah, totally understandable. Like, I, I have absolutely no qualms about having gone to the Australian, like I'm really grateful to Rick Morton for writing about our case because it actually kind of kicked people into gear and they were like, oh wow, we actually have to take this case seriously. Like it is pretty bad compared (laughs) to a lot of things that are happening. Um, So yeah, I would say that a lot of resistance is very much individualized and there isn't really any grassroots movement per se there is a really good facebook group called ndis grassroots discussion where people do have talks about it um but there's mixed opinion where a lot of people who are better off because of the ndis just won't take on board any critique at all and don't want to hear about how it's worse off for a majority of people because mm. you know they're really scared that like sure. oh, well if we if we're better off by this and people aren't you know are they going to come after us i know there's lots of tension with families who won't reveal how much they got funded by the ndis to other families because they don't want to become targeted by you know people who were really upset or resentful that they didn't get funded this much
0: like how pernicious isn't it
1: how fucking like horrifying is that that like people and carers can't share their experiences because they're so scared of what other people are going to think like it's pitting people literally against each other um And it's horrifying. Um, And some of the kind of best resistance I've seen has been around disability advocacy. So I'm not sure if we've talked about this already, but in New South Wales, along with, you know, this privatisation of disability services and the state trying to pull out from funding, um, the state also wants to kind of pretty much demolish any funding that they give to disability advocacy. So... So
0: could you just clarify the difference between...
1: Yep. Yeah, for sure. So disability advocates are essentially people who understand the disability system and will act as an advocate on your behalf. So you will kind of give them permission to, you know, come to meetings with you or to understand and look at your NDIS plan. And they essentially are your advocate and they're always on your side um, and they will argue whatever case you have, um, whether it be at an NDIS planning meeting or like a care planning meeting. Um, and they also, I guess, try and give people who would struggle to actually have a voice in the process to have a voice. So for people with intellectual disabilities, for example, advocates are absolutely crucial. And I cannot stress enough how horrifying and terrifying the ordeal that we've been through would have been if we hadn't had access to an advocate. Mm-hmm. Um so they're absolutely vital and, you know, they're set to be cut. So I, I rang up our advocate the other day about an issue regarding to mom and I was just like, hey, so, like, um, I've heard about the, the disability advocacy cuts, you know, what is going to happen with our agency? Um, and she said that they're either going to have to cut staff or it means that agencies merge and, and when they merge, they kind of lose autonomy and they kind of lose what <laughs> being an advocate means, right?
0: Yeah. And this would also, I guess, like... The New South Wales example of another part of social services is what happened to women's shelters and domestic violence shelters where all the little feminist ones were abolished and the ones that survived and merged were all the large Christian NGOs that had the resources. Yep, exactly. So what
1: has happened in New South Wales is I think it's the New South Wales Council for Disability Advocacy have launched a campaign called Stand By Me and they've had a really great social media presence. Um, they've had mobilizations uh, they had one recently in Queenmian. They've had them kind of all up the mid North coast. They've had mm. them in Sydney. I think there's one at New South Wales parliament, um, in April. Um, so that has been like a really vital part of resistance because a lot of the issues that advocates deal with are regarding the NDIS. Um, but apart from that, it's really hard to say what resistance looks like. Um, and I was I was reading, kind of on a tangent, Tim Lyons' new piece on organising Australian unions. Yeah, uh, interesting right? piece, right? Yeah. 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 Really interesting piece. And one of the ideas that Tim kind of floats down the bottom, which I thought was really important, is on joint organizing. And Tim says that we need to, you know, invest in kind of properly resourced joint organizing um, in areas like the NDIS because we should be allying with not only, you know, clients or people with disabilities and their families to attack the funding models that are kind of leaving them worse off and leaving them more exposed to abuse, but also you know, the funding models that are hurting these workers and that are meaning that clients are left angry and workers are left frustrated and angry. And, you know, there's two sides to the coin who are kind of pitted against each other because of the circumstances, but in reality have the power to both run the same line, which is that the NDIS is a total disaster and that the funding model is hurting workers and it's also hurting people with disabilities. So I found that a really interesting... Kind of point that I don't think the disability community has kind of latched onto
0: yet. Yeah, yeah. I guess that there's two. I guess there's two kind of linked things here, isn't it? There's that like broader, bigger question of like we know how important what we might call care work, waged and unwaged, whatever form it takes, out is to social reproduction, but yep. it's still often very difficult to talk about what struggle on that terrain looks like. Um, and there, if you just jog this thing at the back of my, my memory, I'm, I'm not sure if you've ever seen an essay called A Very Careful Strike.
1: No, I haven't.
0: It's written no. by a Spanish feminist collective, and I think their name translates as Precarious Women Adrift, but it's um, on the, the old commoner journal, has it, if you, you know, Google it. And I'll link it to this article, and that deals with this. But also what yeah. you're talking about is a particular structure. Like That's a difficult question, but a particular structure that seems pitted against any kind of links of solidarity in its execution.
1: Yeah, for sure, for sure. And, like, it's totally bizarre to me because, like, the basis of care work is, it says it in the name, it's care. Yeah, it's be Yeah, yeah, people are supposed to be building these, like, you know, really valuable friendships and relationships and uh, kind of, yeah, connections based on solidarity. Like I was at the bus stop the other day and I was talking to a really nice auntie and she um, was talking to me about her NDIS package and I was just like, has it been better off for you? And she said, yes, I feel like I've been better off because my care workers are my friends. Mm. Um, so it goes to show for many people just how important this kind of formation of solidarity is. Yeah. because. You know, these people are dealing with, like, the nitty-gritty of your everyday lives, and they literally are sustaining you, and they are what give you joy, um, but also deal with, like, the really messy, complicated layers of life as well, and so it is insanely traumatic to have these people pitted against you um, and to try and work through these emotions of resent and anger at the people who are are giving you care because you you walk this really fine line of wanting to stand up for yourself and saying, you know, the level of care I'm getting isn't good enough whilst also realising that they can't give you any more than they're giving you because of the way that the scheme has been designed.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting where you think there's so much of the rhetoric out there in what they call human services is around things like resilience and community resilience, yet the actual, like, what they're actually talking about is how we all cope because the structure is fucked.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, essentially, I like it's it's really fucked. And I've had so many fucked examples. I have cried to social workers about this, you know, and I've just been like, how is this so fucked? Um, and they just they can't answer me and they can't do anything for me. Like there was one point where because mum was technically classed as a non-acute patient, that the hospital wanted to charge her sixty dollars a day, which actually worked out to be more than her disability pension. Um, and I. Yeah, I was just like, I'm not paying this. This is fucking ridiculous. And I haven't paid it yet. Um, But I I emailed our social worker and I was just like, I don't know how people expect us to be able to afford this. Mm. Um, And the social worker just emailed me back and linked uh, a link to financial counseling. That's (laughs) Um, crazy. and, And I was like, you know, like how... Have you become so detached, this is the only option you can give me to console yeah. me when you know full well the situation? And I, I can see how frustrated they get because they, they can't help. like They yeah. literally can't help.
0: Do you know if there's much, like, have you come across any actual kind of decent scholarly or non-scholarly writing about the history of how this has evolved over the last decades?
1: No, so I have tried to find it. I did an essay for a sociology course I did last year and I tried to kind of find any you know, academic literature at all on the NDIS um, and I couldn't really find it. I found some dealing with how it has played out in Aboriginal communities, but yeah. that's been in relation to kind of broader trends in social services. But I haven't found any literature at all um, on the formation of the NDIS or how it has worked out the way it has or how it has gone from such big kind of rhetoric and big dreams to such a failing scheme.
0: Yeah, I've found I've a similar thing in like uh, vocational education and training. It's like there's not even like decent histories of how this has unfolded over the last couple of decades. Yeah. I feel that kind of leaves us like really kind of like thrashing about trying to understand where we're at.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. I totally agree. Like I've, I've tried to research, you know, how did this happen? And I think it's because – has been such an unknown from the beginning and because it is, like I said before, it's like an experiment, right? And people aren't really sure what's happening now and we're, what, you know, five years on from when Mm. the NDIS was first implemented and we are still having growing pains and I would expect us to have growing pains for the next 10 to 20 years and you would think that something that they call the biggest social reform since Medicare
0: would... Oh, that's the line, isn't
1: it? Yeah, that's the line, the biggest social reform since medicare it will revolutionize disability services um but no one knows how or why um or how this reform has actually kind of gone from baby steps to falling off a cliff essentially
0: so marlene what would you like to see happen um
1: <laughs> that's a good question Full commun- full communism Yeah, full communism, obviously. Um, No, I I think it's really important that we link it in with industrial issues. Um, And I think that this is something that, for instance, the CPSU or the Health Services Union aren't going hard enough on, that they're not actually linking workers' conditions to the funding of the system and how it's hurting people with disabilities as well. So I obviously Mm. would love to see people kind of pick up on this critique that Tim has put out um, and see this kind of joint organising happening. I obviously would love to see to the kind of I don't want to say going back to the previous model because the previous model was so drastically underfunded that that's why it collapsed and that's why the NDIS became the solution in the first place Um, but I think we need like socialized healthcare and we need socialized disability care that isn't based on a privatized system and actually isn't bureaucratic and can take into account the complexities of people's yep. lives because there is literally no one-size-fits-all with
0: people with disabilities. Totally. And I guess that's the thing in terms of why the NDIS rhetoric still like, resonates with people because, say, in Queensland, there were people that I worked with um, that had intellectual disabilities that in their lifetime had spent a period of their life just medicated permanently in a bed. Yep. You know, and so like that old image of like state care being nothing but some kind of bureaucratic nightmare is, is has a reality to it, right? And so you can see why that language of choice and individual approach seems so powerful.
1: Yeah, for sure. And you can see too why people who are better off by the NDIS fight so hard against any critique because people generally are, like there's a small proportion who are better off and who had horror stories with the state system. Mm. Um, and, you know, it's really hard to try and argue against that and say, well, no, the NDIS isn't the answer because what came before it wasn't the answer either. Um, and yeah, it's really hard. And I think yeah totally one of the biggest issues too is that people with disabilities are so vulnerable, like 50% of people with disabilities are living below the poverty line. People are so atomized, like I said. People are so vulnerable that you feel helpless and you feel that you're struggling just to keep your head above water in the bureaucracy of it all, let alone have the energy to continue to fight every fucking day just mm. for scraps. Um, and so to be able to do that just for your own family or just for yourself um and not actually be able to do that in like a collective kind of framework is really, really hard. So that is the kind of other thing I'd like to see. I'd like to see some kind of mobilisation where people with disabilities and their carers and families can actually talk to each other and connect. But at the moment it's just too fucking hard because people are struggling to survive.
0: Yeah. That's what an inc- that's incredible. I, I think one of the things we've touched on as well is another kind of broader difficulty that we have that like, one of the hard things about seeming to defend the remnants of social democracy was how bad they were, yep. in like in so many ways. Like you know, I've just finished reading Hart and Negri's book Assembly, and they really kind of like drive the point that you know we don't want private or public; we want some kind of common property or yep. commonwealth. And there's like to be a cliche of myself. There's like this old zapatista line where they were talking about, you know, when there was the plan in the 1994, I think it was, or 993, whatever it was, changes to the constitution that would allow the privatisation of collectively held land in Mexico, they've got some line that they had to transform it into something that was worth defending.
1: Yeah, there, for and, sure. And
0: I think that that insight really sticks with me with a lot of these kind of social services. It can't simply be the defence of what is, right?
1: Yeah, it has to be the defense of what would actually give people like a quality of life and would actually give people lives that they can live. Because at the moment, I know in particular with my mom, she struggles like every day. She says to me, Molly, I don't want to be alive. Oh my God. Like, what life is this for me? And like it's really hard for me to consult her and say – oh, no, 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 it's fine. Just wait until your NDIS package comes and then mm. you'll get the support you need and everything will be fine because I know that that's not what's going to happen, but I still have to sell her that line every day just to give her some semblance of hope. But, like, I don't have the ability to sell her something that is worth defending because yep. there is nothing that's worth defending in disability services in Australia.
0: Molly, I think that – thank you very much for your time, Um We've a little bit over an hour. Is there anything that we haven't talked about that you would like us to discuss?
1: Um, not that I can think of, like, (laughs) just, I think one of the main points when we talked about the history of the NDIS is that a lot of people either want to call it a Gillard project and that, like, it's a product of a Labour government or that it's, like, actually the problems are because the LNP came into power and I think that we really need to reframe the NDIS, especially as anti-capitalists, as a product of, like, neoliberalism and of privatisation and that, like, no matter who the fuck is in government this was always coming because we have slowly you know seen this really unwinning takeover of disability services where public providers have been phased out and private providers have just taken over
0: brilliant <laughs> if people want to follow you on twitter what's your twitter handle again
1: yep so it is at v so that's v c h r i s t a b l I tweet a lot. I tweet a lot about the NDIS and in particular I tweet a lot about the things that are happening to my mum. So it's almost like a diary (laughs) in a sense. But I think it's a good way just to be able to kind of track um, all the shit things that happen to her and how it fluctuates so regularly.
0: Mm. And you've got two articles on Medium, is that correct?
1: Yeah, so I have two articles on Medium. I also have an article up on bossy.com which is the anu women's department magazine that i wrote um just on like how the mdis is really hard to apply for in the first place
0: brilliant so i will link to all of those in the show notes thank you very much for your your time that's like been a brilliant insight into what's going on and all the best for the future
1: thanks dave
0: (laughs) (laughs) all right you've been listening to living the dream um hope everyone's having a lovely night